You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low-flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking about the Chesapeake Bay today with uh, Tim Wheeler. He is associate editor and senior writer with the Bay Journal. Tim, how's it going? Going great. Couldn't ask for more. Uh, I'm glad to talk to you. Uh, you know, we we crossed paths back when I worked at the Chesapeake Bay program in Annapolis, and you were uh, a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Um, That's right. I was just thinking uh, as I was getting ready to talk to you about how uh, I was always happy to send information and news your way because I knew that it would be reported fairly and accurately, um, which is all you really can ask for from a journalist. So um, glad to have you still working on Bay issues. Uh, I'm glad to be doing it yeah, still. Yeah. A little, a little dismayed that uh, I'm still doing it 30 <laughs> plus years after I started. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm dismayed that there's been such big cuts to environmental reporting, you know, at newspapers around the country. And I, I know that, you know, the Baltimore Sun was not immune to that phenomenon, just of general cutbacks to newsrooms, right, and to editorial staffs. But I think environmental reporting at, you know, traditional media outlets was a, a special part of kind of those cuts, right? Uh, it was. I mean, the environment beat has often been seen as a uh you know, as an extra or something that was, you know, expendable. Uh, the Sun, uh, you know, to their credit, has, uh, has had an environment beat, uh, you know, sort of consistently since, uh, well, before I got there, well before I got there. Um, uh, and they maintained it, um, and they still have one. Uh, it reached a high point when I was there. Of We had, you know, three to five people you know, who at least some part of their reporting responsibilities involved covering the Bay and, and the environmental issues, mm. uh, whether it was an Eastern Shore correspondent or uh, I covered growth for a while. And a lot of that was about smart growth and the environmental impacts of growth. Um, it dwindled down to just one reporter, uh, you know, in the five, you know, five to 10 years ago. Um, Time frame. I was, uh, and when I left in 2015, I begged them, pleaded with them, told them they would be crazy if they didn't replace me, and they did. Uh, and the new reporter is doing a Scott Dance is doing a great job. Mm. Uh, he has a couple of additional responsibilities that I didn't have, and so you know one of the things that has happened is that you get pulled off more and more to do other things. Just as the newsroom shrinks, uh, it's harder to be able to afford to have beats. And I think this. The, the unfortunate thing for the environment is it's a complicated topic. 
uh, it benefits from having somebody who can really dig into it and get familiar with the the issues and uh, and the uh, complications, the science and the policy and the law. And uh, so, you know, there's that challenge. On the other hand, I mean, there's been a growth, I think, in nonprofit uh, journalism. Um, you know, the Bay Journal has grown. Uh, I was added in 2016, and we have reporters in uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia now. Um, and um, there are other media, Virginia Mercury and in, in Virginia, um, uh, and locally here in Baltimore, the Baltimore Brew, all those have sort of stepped in and covered environmental issues that, you know, are maybe not getting as much attention in the mainstream media as they used to. Uh, if yeah. only we had a little more reach, that would be the, uh, the benefit. Sure. And I've seen, I know that some nonprofits are helping to fund environmental journalism in some cases. You know, I think even, I mean, one example that pops up is down for the New Orleans, NOLA.com. And, and down there, I think they've had some mm -hmm. funding that's helped helped get some uh, reporters in there to, to cover coastal issues and everything. And um, then there's these kind of uh, environmental media outlets. You mentioned Bay Journal. Um, there's this water desk that's out west now um, mm -hmm. that's, that's doing some stuff. So. So kind of trying to fill that void when, like you said, traditional media outlets have, have kind of cut back. Uh, it, makes, right. it makes sense. You know, Baltimore is on the bay, right? And the Chesapeake is just such a vital part of that area and that region in many ways that you can't just walk away from that, that uh, beat entirely. It just, just couldn't be done. You can't. I mean, when you look at a map, uh, the bay is uh, central to Maryland. It, you know, it cuts right through the state. Uh, in, a, in a way more than any of the others in Virginia, sort of off to the side. Uh, not saying that Virginians don't care about the Bay, they really do, uh, and they, they relish it as well. Uh, but for Maryland, it's been sort of a central part of the state's identity. Yeah, as a as a Maryland native, I agree with that. The Bay is more ours than Virginia's, so <laughs> I'll stick with that. Um, so speaking of the Bay, I, I really am curious. You know, like I said, I used to work at the Chesapeake Bay program and and lived in Annapolis, uh, worked at EPA in DC, and and kept a, I've still kept a, a close eye on how the the Bay is doing. But from from your reporting, from your perspective, what's the what's the current health right now of the bay? How's it doing? Kind of you know based on those traditional indicators. Well, it depends on your perspective mm. and on what kind of a time scale you want to use. Um, if you want to look at just moment by moment, year by year, conditions vary. As you know, they they go up and they go down. It's a little bit like a an oscilloscope, and the weather plays a big factor. Um, you know, there's a, you know, you can look at the report cards that are put out by the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, for instance. Um, in 2017, the Bay got a C, which was like a, you know, considered to be a really good grade. I don't know if my parents would have been happy with C's when I was in school, but, but that was progress. Uh, the last couple of years have been rough. Uh, we had uh, incredible amounts of rainfall, record rainfall, record river flows, and all that rain and runoff, created runoff and and non-point pollution uh, that you know uh, was had a whammy effect on water quality and some of the indicators. Um, so you know the grade of the latest report card that came out a few weeks ago was a C minus. Uh, so it slipped. And if you look at the some things like bay grasses, uh, they're off considerably from their high point in 2017. They had surpassed 100,000 acres, which was you know 
the highest that they've been recorded since uh, they started trying to bring the bay grasses back in the uh, in the uh, 80s or early 90s. Um, and they're down around 67,000 acres now. So they they took a big hit, about a third uh, back. Now is that from uh, what 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 causes that? Is that all the sediment and everything coming out of those rivers kind of, you know, it doesn't do a good for those grass beds or what's what's the decline from? It's a combination of factors. Uh, the sediment, of course, clouds the water. So do the nutrients. They create, you know, these big algae blooms. Sometimes the and some of the the growth uh, that actually grows on the leaves of the bay grasses cuts off the sunlight. The, the the less clear the water is, the harder the sunlight is to penetrate. It's like any garden. If you don't have sun, you don't they don't grow. Uh, and some of the you know some of the beds were smothered in sediment. Uh, in a few places, I know you know. You can actually have flows in, in rivers strong enough that they can actually uproot some of the grasses in, in places, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this probably is a temporary thing. It, it should come back. Uh, and again, you know, this is that perspective issue, though. Uh, the goal for the bay is 185,000 acres. Mm. So you can see that we're, you know, even at 100,000 acres, we're still far short of what the goal is. And, and nobody thinks that 185,000 acres is what used to be out there. That was just a restoration goal. Sure, sure. And what about that iconic crab, you know, the blue crab, which is, you know, so carefully monitored. Uh, how's, how's the crab doing there? Well, uh, I've been interviewing crabs, and they're, um, <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were hard to find at the beginning of the spring. Um, but uh, the latest survey, uh, you know, maybe, again, not surprising, but they're affected by weather, too, though in different ways. Uh, it impacts their reproduction. Uh, if you know anything about crabs, they basically use the entire bay uh, and they spawn essentially near the mouth of the bay. The crab larvae uh, essentially go out into the ocean and come back. And, uh, you know, making that kind of a journey is always fraught with, uh, you know, all kinds of issues. The latest survey found that they were down again by about a third from what they had been the previous year. Uh, not entirely clear why that is. It wasn't a particularly bad winter, so the you know the crabs didn't uh, get frozen to death on the bottom, as has happened sometimes in the bay. Um, but uh, even with that, the numbers are within the bounds of what scientists say uh, is a sustainable population. They, female crabs are the ones that have to bear the babies. Uh, we're down by 40% or thereabouts. But they're still well above the, the lowest level that they've dropped before. And so folks think that things are not in terrible shape. Um, we'll just have to wait and see what you know the next couple of years bring. I mean, that, Meanwhile, you're going to be paying a premium for crabs. I was going to say, yeah, it's going to be a, a little more expensive summer for all those folks that uh, love their, their crabs. Um, yes. The harvest pressure is such a big part of how the population's doing, too. I mean, there's been, you know, just years and years of, of figuring out the right restrictions on, on commercial crabbing and, and all that. But uh, have they kind of settled into policy on that front? or? Yeah, for the most part. Um, you know, they hit a, you know, a real serious uh, point about 12 years ago, around 2008 um, time frame when there was real concern at that point, all the numbers were pointing downward and they were near the bottom of the scale in terms of what scientists thought was safe. And so they cut back significantly. There was a lot of, um, uh, in fact, the federal government threw in some disaster relief money for the crab fishery then. It's the most important one in the Bay. Um, and um, 
and they made you know some significant cutbacks in uh, the season and the catch limits, uh, you know, and they were painful for the waterman to bear. Uh, and you know, we saw the prices go up, of course, but, uh, they've been pretty consistent. Even as the crabs have improved, they have not thrown the doors wide open again. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you get people saying we should be cutting back even more, but you know, within the bounds of this, these guardrails that the scientists have set, we're not at the target level where it would be, you know, all roses. But we're also not, uh, you know, down where the flashing yellow lights are, saying that we're in danger. So, and, and then the, uh, you know, the rockfish. That's another kind of measure, something people people look at. Um, yeah, I've always been intrigued by looking at the population of rockfish versus the health of the rockfish. You know, because I know that there's some history of, you know, lesions and other kinds of concerns about how the the fish actually are. So, what's what's mm-hmm. going on with those guys? Well, again, <laughs> your perspective matters. Uh, I, as I said, I've been doing this for, for decades. And uh, back around uh, uh, in the early 80s, there was significant concern about striped bass or rockfish, as we call them here in the Bay. Uh, and uh, things were in such a dire strait uh, in terms of the numbers and the, the trending, uh, downward trending of the population that uh, Maryland and Virginia put on uh, moratorium throughout the Bay. The Bay is a major nursery for this species. It's the premier fin fish uh, in, in the bay, but it's also one of the top fin fish uh, for the Atlantic coast. These fish migrate up and down the coast, um, you know, in their life cycle. And, you know, catch restrictions were put on coastwide. Within five years, they came back, and they came back strong uh, to the point that sometimes people, the watermen would complain that there were too many striped bass. They were eating the crabs. Uh. But uh, they've, been, uh, they've been sliding back down again. And uh, so just within the past year, uh, all the Atlantic states have put on catch restrictions again. Their aim is to reduce the mortality by about 18%. Uh, we're waiting to see if that is enough and if that's going to work. Mm-hmm. They do have an uh, issue with, uh, you know, it's not clear exactly what's happening here. Part of it may be, um, you know, that the water is so warm, especially in the summertime, even if you catch them and release them, they may die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the young ones may not be living very long if uh, if there's this high catch and release mortality. There's also an issue with the bacterial infections. A large percentage of the fish in the bay uh, have some infection. Uh, doesn't necessarily kill them outright, but it may be you know impeding their reproduction or their longevity. So interesting. All right. Well, let's shift shift from the critters in the water to the to the politics and the policy here. The the, the, the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the TMDL, the total maximum daily load, the pollution sure. diet for the Chesapeake Bay, right? That was right. established in the end of 2010. Um, really, this historic. Uh, agreement, a TMDL that's of a scope that's never been done before. Um, mm-hmm. I was at the Chesapeake Bay program in EPA, so that's kind of how I know all these talking points. Um, what's the the status of the work on that TMDL? It's uh, it was supposed to they're supposed to meet the goals, have all the the practices in place to reduce pollution by 2025. So 10 years in, five years to go. What's the what's the assessment of where that stands? Well, uh, you know, we're getting down to the, uh, you know, to the second half of whatever sports metaphor you want to use here, <laughs> nearing the home stretch. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's beginning to be apparent that while uh, some of the states have done great work 
at you know trying to meet their pollution reduction targets and are close, if not directly on target. Uh, they have the you know they appear to be able to to close the gap. They may be able to, I think. Uh, that's still a question. Mm. Uh, Pennsylvania, in particular, and New York as well, um, which has a small, you know, a, a lesser portion of the Bay watershed, um, are pretty far behind. And there's significant concern about whether they uh, are able or willing to ramp up enough to meet those goals. And in fact, there's you know beginning to be talk that 2025, which was the target date that was set for meeting the TMDL, the the pollution reduction goals of each state uh, is beginning to look like it's not going to be made. And it may not be made by all the states because as they get, you know, as they ratchet down pollution, they start with the so-called low-hanging fruit, the things that they know can work and that uh, cost the least. And uh, over time now we're getting into the really hard stuff. Um, they made great progress at reducing uh, nutrient pollution coming out of wastewater treatment plants through upgrades to the plants, those were not cheap, but they've been instituted pretty much throughout Maryland and, uh, and Virginia, uh, some improvements being made in Pennsylvania as well. And so that's where you see the real gains in water quality that, that you can measure. Uh, on the non-point side, the runoff side, controlling pollution uh, runoff from farms and from uh, urban and suburban landscapes, much more challenging, much more expensive and much less progress there. Mm. And unfortunately, that's where the bulk of the progress that has to come yet is, is on the non-point side. Mm. And so that's the big test, um, whether that will be achievable or not. Yeah, you can, you, you can take on these, uh, the discharges from wastewater plants through permitting and, and things like mm -hmm. that. Uh, agriculture is much, much, much less regulated. You've really got to do a lot of voluntary work on that front. And then the stormwater from cities and, and suburbs, you know, development continues, you know, like, like hotcakes in D.C. and Maryland and Virginia. So it's, you're, you're adding more uh, paved surfaces. Makes that tough, right. too. Right, Um a lot, lot of politics flying around. I've, I've seen, uh, in, like you alluded to, with Pennsylvania and Maryland, Virginia. Then you've got EPA under the Trump administration. There's different uh, lawsuits, I think, that are being looked at. Um, mm -hmm. yep. Lawsuits yep. against Pennsylvania because they're not doing their share. At this point, the threat is mainly uh, of lawsuits against EPA. Okay. Um, the, the, the big... You know, issue here, as you know, the, the, the TMDL was challenged in court uh, after it was was uh, developed um, by the Farm Bureau, uh, led by the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau, by home builders. Uh, it survived that court challenge. Uh, the decision was that this was, you know, that this was a mutual thing, that EPA and the states were all in this together. Um, those, uh, that apparent bond is starting to fray uh, pretty severely. Uh, with the evidence that Pennsylvania in particular is lagging so far behind and the lack of apparent uh, progress on their part in actually closing the gap, their latest plan that they submitted for reaching the 2025 goal uh, didn't make any bones about it that they were not going to get there. Yeah. And um, uh, environmental groups, community groups, and uh, states even, uh, Maryland, have sort of put the heat on EPA to say, you know, look, you know, what are you going to do about this? And EPA under the Trump administration has said basically, 
uh, TMDLs are not enforceable, that it's up to the states to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, that's, you know, and this is one for the lawyers to, to hash out. Uh, EPA, when they were developing the uh, TMDL, had said there will be consequences if you don't meet the uh, milestones. Uh, the consequences are fairly limited, as you know, under the it's a matter of taking away federal funds. In Pennsylvania's case, the big problem is they're not spending nearly enough um, to do put in place the, the kinds of runoff controls and other pollution controls that they need. And the legislature there is unwilling to raise funds, either through taxes or through just allocating the money from other things. Uh, so you have a you know sort of a political impasse. Uh, Maryland and Virginia and uh, the Bay Foundation and other environmental groups uh, have filed formal notice of intent to sue over uh, the lack of enforcement of the TMDL. And the Trump administration is basically telling them they're, uh, you know, they're wasting their time. Uh, and so we may see lawsuits before the year is out. <sighs> guess it was always in, in meant to go that way at some point it's I, I think part of the thing that's tough is you know pennsylvania is not on the bay right that's not part of a uh, part of the fabric of their communities and their economy they're they're upstream in the watershed they've mm -hmm. got they've got the susquehanna river um same thing with new york i mean they've got a sliver of the bay it's it's hard to motivate them to to take action too so mm -hmm. interesting it, it is uh, new york was kind of an unwilling partner in this whole process, you know, a reluctant partner, if you will, mm. uh, along the way. And, and they've done, you know, they've participated in the meetings, but, uh, but, you know, have not been as, uh, out front and in, in Pennsylvania, it's, a, you know, it's a, it's, you know, the politics there that the legislature is controlled by the Republicans. Mm. Uh, the governor's office currently is a Democrat. Uh, but the geography is probably the more compelling factor there. And the fact that they aren't on the Bay, they don't have a direct role where folks have tried to sort of bend the curve on this is that they've pointed out that, you know, improving water quality in Pennsylvania rivers and streams will benefit them as well as the Bay. They have a huge number of impaired waterways um, among the highest percentage in the country. Mm. Um, you know, this is a state that has had a long history of, of uh, resource extraction, coal mining, uh, oil and gas development and uh, impacts from that uh, are still being felt in acid mine drainage in some waterways. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of farming uh, in some parts of the Bay watershed down towards the uh, southeastern portion there. There's probably more, more animal units than there are people. <laughs> and uh, and that, those animal units manure is being spread on the land and, and some, in a lot of cases getting into the river. So it's a, you know, it's a big challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, the only uh, way to get around it is convince them that it's in their interest to spend, you know, to spend the money, not just to help Maryland. But that's sort of where things are starting to sort of get fractious, because as Maryland complains about Pennsylvania and threatens lawsuits and others threaten to sue Pennsylvania, yes, um, then Pennsylvania's get even the Democratic governor gets his back up mm -hmm. and says this is not the way to go. Yeah. So, you know, the, the partnership may be uh, getting a little uh, attenuated here. Strange, sure. And then now you fold on what's happened with the coronavirus pandemic, the, the big economic implications from that, how, how the economy's gone and employment's gone. And 
looking at focusing on that recovery and you know environmental issues kind of take take more of a backseat i guess in, in the months or year ahead as as people try to regroup from that you know sure well we've got you know we've we've seen some immediate impacts already i mean uh, one of the fisheries here that we don't talk about anymore but once was the premier fishery in the bay was uh, was with with shad um and uh at one time they were a major fishery uh commercial fishery people ate them um even in my youth my dad uh you know we were, we would eat shad every spring uh they're rarely seen now they're still banned they stopped allowing fishing for shad or catching them uh in the bay uh 30 years ago wow. yeah so they've been off limits here for that long uh, and they're still in trouble um the big you know there's been an effort to restore them uh, part of it has been water quality part of it may be fishing pressure uh and a big part of it has been lack of access to spawning grounds uh dams and other obstructions that have prevented them from getting up river We've got a pretty decent shad population now coming into the Potomac every spring. That's the one sort of bright spot there. The Susquehanna, which used to be a major fishery, has been in trouble. And this year, because of the coronavirus, um, what they've been doing for years to try to bring the shad back there had to be put on hold. They would uh, harvest shad uh, in the bay and raise the fry and the hatchery and then release them in hopes that that would sort of keep the population going and bring it back. And they had also been lifting them over the Conowingo Dam, which is the biggest sort of uh, dam uh, on the East Coast, um, 90 some feet uh, in height. Um, and at one time that lift was was doing very well. Lately, it's not been doing well at all, but it was still put, putting some thousands of fish up river to spawn. This year, because of the coronavirus, the uh, dam operator decided it wasn't safe to run the lift. And so for the first half, more than half of the uh, spawning season, wasn't operating. Uh, they got some heat, some pressure from conservation groups and from a little bit from federal regulators, and they decided that they could maybe do it after all. They started started up the lift and uh, moved a, a few hundred fish and then realized that they were also moving invasive uh, snakeheads up the river, and uh, and so they shut it down again. Uh, so no no hatchery for shad this year no lift operation. So that's, you know, that may be just a blip. I mean, things are, they need a much bigger lift than what's going on there right now. But that's sort of, sort of the initial feeling. The bigger question you point out about the economy, we'll have to wait and see uh, how, how much of a hit uh, states are going to take in terms of their tax revenues as a result of this. It's bound to be at least a one-year hit. Maybe it's going to last longer. I guess we'll wait and see how the economy recovers. But that means that, you know, uh, other restoration programs, environmental programs, probably going to be not seeing an increase and probably seeing a, a decrease, at least for uh, the time being. And that, that could be a problem. We haven't seen actual numbers yet. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to, that'll be a continuing story. Any other uh, impacts of the coronavirus pandemic uh that's, that's going on when it comes to bay restoration and, and you know, it's kind of core water-based industries and so forth. Obviously, uh, a lot of the recreation kind of outfitters and stuff like that might not have been, not been having the action this spring. Um, yeah, anything else? Well, I mean, Maryland actually forbade uh, boating for a while uh, and 
fishing unless it was subsistence fishing. A lot of people suddenly decided they couldn't live without fish, and they went out fishing anyway. But, but uh, you know, there was a, at least a you know a brief hit from that. A couple months, uh, the the limits on boating and fishing have been taken off now. There was a surge, and there has been, I think, nationwide of people going to parks uh, to get out. Uh, you know, even though they were, un- were under stay-at-home orders or working from home and that sort of thing. Uh, there have been some challenges with that, with more people uh, getting into the parks and the public spaces, uh, and there are f- maybe fewer people there to maintain those public spaces because of the, you know, the restrictions on government workers. Uh, there's been more litter and, and you know, maintenance problems, uh, and uh, that's, you know, sort of a, a minor side effect of this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the public uh, education and outreach that normally happens with the Bay Restoration has been postponed or canceled for this year, uh, just because you know of the uh, need for social distancing. So you know, again, that could be just a a minor uh, setback. But uh, when we're down to this point where we're trying to reach uh, this 2025 target every year that we're losing ground or not making progress is is going to make it much that much harder. Sure. I remember um, when I was in eighth grade, I think we took a, uh, a field trip to the bay and I think we went to the Bay Foundations at Claggett Farm. Um, mm-hmm. And we also one night, it was an overnight, we took a nighttime canoe ride through a marsh and like it, the moon was out and the birds were out. This was a spring thing. And it was yeah. really, really formative for me as a, I don't know, 13 year old or something. Um, and so, like, if that was this year, that wouldn't have happened. And who knows where I would be. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned Conowingo Dam, and I know that that's really kind of surged recently as a, as a focus area. Why, right. why is that kind of uh, that issue risen up? Well, uh, I mean, it's always been an issue in terms of the uh, like the fish populations, the shad and and uh, eels. And, and, you know, so there's even a water quality impact from that because the uh, the eels that American eels that migrate uh, up the river uh, also carry little clams with them, which produce, you know, help filter the water. But the bigger issue has been that the dam, because it's sat there since the 20s, has been uh, trapping sediment and some nutrients behind the uh, behind the uh, uh, dam for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, that reservoir, that pool uh, behind the dam is slowly filled up. I mean, it's not that the, you know, it's not that you can see the ground there now, but it's the bottom of that reservoir is filled up to the point that water uh, essentially flushes everything over the dam now that was used to be getting trapped. And so there's an increase of sediment and nutrient coming down through the dam. And when there's a storm uh, or particularly heavy rains as we had in the last couple of years, then that scours out more of that built up sediment and nutrients behind the dam and puts them downriver and into the upper bay. Mm. And, um, you know, there's been modeling that shows that unless they do something uh, about that, uh, that it's going to be hard to reach all the water quality goals for the upper bay that they need to to, to meet the TMDL pollution reduction targets. So um, and there's the concern that if we have another big storm, a big hurricane like Agnes in 72, or Lee, that that could produce a major setback in terms of just burying oyster beds and SAV beds, grass beds and sediment and putting a a whole uh, potload of uh, new nutrients out there to create algae blooms and fish kills. 
So um, the state and some environmental groups, and especially those who don't really like being told that they have to clean up their own backyard, uh, have been pointing at the Conowingo Dam and saying, yeah, but what about Conowingo Dam? Mm -hmm. What about Conowingo Dam? And so the Bay Program has recognized it. That's an issue. They've decided they need to do something about that. And the, the basically the Susquehanna. Uh, uh, the challenge always has been, what are you going to do? Dredging it out is an incredibly expensive undertaking to create a new trapping capacity there. Uh, and it's not clear who would pay for that. Uh, Maryland attempted to use the, uh, the federal licensing of that dam, which was up for renewal, as leverage to get the owner of the dam, Exelon Corporation, big power company, to pony up lots of money to, uh, to, to help clean up the, uh, the, the nutrients in the sediment. Uh, they wound up in court uh, and ultimately reached a settlement which, uh, you know, according to the press release, says it was $200 million commitment. Uh, only about half of that was real cash. Mm. Um, and, uh, and there's challenges to that now, saying, in essence, that that's not nearly enough to do anything uh, meaningful. And uh, the license is still pending. Mm. Uh, could wind up in court again, for all we know. So we'll see. Uh, uh, more of that court action. <laughs> more yes. of that court action, yeah. Um, we are a litigious society. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, about some positive stuff, I guess, you know, what are, from your, you know, years reporting on the Bay, from what you've been doing at the Bay Journal, what are some of the success stories maybe that you haven't mentioned already? Some of the areas of progress, some of the encouraging things that happen, whether that's, you know, in a broad sense or even some specific examples well, I, I think I mentioned before that, you know, sewage treatment, wastewater treatment has been a big success. Uh, part of that is technological and part of that is political and financial. I mean, uh, engineers came up with new ways of enhanced nutrient removal from wastewater uh, to where we've got new, you know, sort of like a whole nutrient removal 2.0 or 3.0, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and they were able to do that with it generally often within the footprint of the existing treatment plant. So you didn't have to start from scratch. You could add on, you could build uh, additions and that sort of thing. And then the States primarily ponied up the money to do it. Uh, in Maryland, there was a, a tax or a fee, I guess you would call it uh, the so-called flush tax or flush fee put on every household. Uh, and uh, so the money was raised to do that in Maryland. Virginia has done a similar thing. Uh, they're not with a specific targeted fee, I do not believe. Um, and so that's been a big help. That has been a big help. Uh, another area where there's been real progress, uh, one that I think none of us really paid much attention to to begin with, has been uh, in terms of air quality. Uh, because of the Clean Air Act, a lot of pressure was put on states, and this came primarily through the federal government, to clean up uh, power plant emissions, clean up industrial emissions, and clean up auto exhaust. A lot of the nutrients that get into the bay come from the air. And, you know, there's nitrogen that's generated as part of combustion in power plants and in auto exhaust, and that stuff rains down on the land and then washes into the bay. And it's been shown now that because of all the reductions that have been made since the, around 1980 in terms of uh, emissions from power plants and automobiles, that a significant reduction in nitrogen runoff has occurred as a result of that. And so that's a plus. 
That's that's how much I, more of that. How much more of that we're going to see under this administration? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's definitely a uh, something people don't think about as much: the idea of an airshed and realizing that a pretty decent chunk of that pie. I forget what it was when I was there. Twenty percent, twenty-five percent. I don't know. Maybe of the nutrient pollution, nitrogen uh, coming in from from the air. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, numbers around 20 percent. Okay. And that was originally treated as as uncontrollable, if you'll remember. I mean, that was not really factored into the thinking about how you had to deal with this. But they began to look, you know, trace back where's this nitrogen coming off the land coming from. Uh, and, you know, and what they found was, well, it's raining down out of the sky, sometimes in rain and sometimes just dry deposition. And the airshed, of course, goes beyond the watershed. The Bay watershed is 64,000 square miles. I would say the airshed is probably double that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it stretches all the way out into the Midwest. Uh, you know, Maryland's air quality is influenced by emissions from Ohio. Uh, so, um, you know, some of that also affects. And then it, you know, it, it drifts on from there. But, um, you know, and that's one of the things, too, was that this Bay cleanup has always been billed as a you know, it was started out as a voluntary uh, partnership, a voluntary agreement. It's become a bit, you know, more regulated over time. Uh, this was a pure and simple straight regulation for air quality, which has had a benefit for water quality. Um, so that, you know, independent of what the states themselves were doing. Sure, sure. Well, um, one of the, one of the, angles of success stories I hope to track down uh, on this podcast is is around agriculture. I hope to uh, find examples of of where things have worked. That could be just a single farm. It could be a certain valley. It could be a stream area. So um, I, I'll, I'm going to follow up on that angle and, and um, because we, we got to elevate those examples and show that the, it can work for ag. It's just a, it's such a tough, tough area it's a tough area part of it is the you know there are limitations on uh, on you know what can be done uh through regulation uh farmers are notoriously independent folks and they'd much rather be you know do these things voluntarily a lot of the effort here in the bay watershed has been through um you know through providing funding with federal or state funding uh to them to put in uh runoff control practices to put in to plant trees along uh, streams flowing through their pastures and fields um, not nearly enough of that has happened and some of it, a lot of it is going in the wrong, isn't going in the places it's most needed. Yeah. Um, but, um, so, you know, we need to step up the pace there more. Uh, Maryland spends hmm, roughly $20 million a year, uh, paying farmers to plant cover crops, which is another good thing that soaks up nutrients left in the fields after the harvest in the fall, keeps them in the, in the plants and in the root zones. And then that's uh, sort of the, an initial dose of nutrients that the, the next crop can take advantage of in the spring. Uh, so that's a good thing as well. Uh, there's still some questions about some of the other farm runoff control practices, how effective they are. And so there's a lot more attention that needs to be paid to that. There are a lot of farmers out there who are trying to do the right thing. And some of the, this has been an evolutionary process. Mm. Some of the advice they initially got wasn't totally correct. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a learning curve here still in terms of what, what's, what's to work and what isn't. But there are a lot of farmers with uh, good intentions and who are doing things and who are putting, putting their own money and, and sweat into the, uh, into the effort. Yeah. So they certainly deserve attention. Sure. 
Uh, last question uh, that I have, and it's based on the fantastic collection of, of bobbleheads you have back there uh, from the, from our, our, both of our favorite baseball team, apparently. Who are you op- more optimistic about, the Orioles or the Chesapeake Bay? <laughs> Near term or, sh- or long term? <laughs> right, right. Um, hey, I, I'm I'm op- cautiously optimistic about the Orioles because we've got a, a new franchise leadership and management and a, and a model that's kind of based on modern day analytics and, and everything. So let's, you just got to give it some time. And maybe that's like the Bay also, right? Like these measures take time to see results in the water. We're going to, it's going to take time to see results on the field for the O's, but it is. And, you know, and I guess one of the things I always say about the Bay is I think we've learned and I've learned from the time when I first started covering this in the early eighties that, you know, this isn't a race with a finish line. This is going to be a constant effort, and it's uh, it's more or less the same with a with a baseball team too. Even if you win a pennant, that's just one pennant. If you want to stay in contention, you have to keep building that farm system and keep putting in the effort to uh, to get back there year after year. Uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that our O's will be back in the uh, pennant contention. Uh, by 2025, there we, not soon. <laughs> there we go. It's a it's a race against the TMDL. Uh, right, Tim. Awesome to catch up with you. A lot of great information. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop.